0: All right, it's time for a little Bible teaching here, Revival 2022. We're going to be studying Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to get started here. It is a great text of Scripture, and you're going to be memorizing it, and there's hardly a better passage of the New Testament for us to be memorizing. So grab your Bibles and grab your notes. We're going to take a few notes on a few things, but first I want to remind you of something that comes out of your mouth when someone falls down. Uh, I bet everybody in the room says it. You see someone fall down, you got a question for them, you say, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? We hear that, you'll hear it, I'm sure, a lot this week. People will seem to be hurt and you'll say, are you okay? It's an interesting phrase, it has been used so often. As a matter of fact, there was a book, a best-selling book, uh, way back when I was a kid, called I'm Okay you're okay. And that was a way to think about the way we all should just look at ourselves and look at other people. And when it comes to how we're doing as people and what we think about ourselves, you should think that you're okay and I should think that I'm okay. That even got into the area of uh, Christian books. They started writing books. If you look really at the upper left-hand corner, you've got the title of that best-selling book years ago that said, I'm okay, you're okay, but then this book's called, I'm okay, you're okay, and God's okay. Uh, So, uh, you know, everybody's just okay, and uh, you're okay, I'm okay, God's okay. But if you really look at your own life, you start thinking, uh, I don't know that I am okay. (laughs) There's a lot of things that don't feel okay. I feel like maybe I'm not okay. And so then they started to write books that came out later that said, it's okay not to be okay. Uh, So if you don't feel okay, you should be okay that you're not okay. As a matter of fact, if you know people that feel like they're not okay, then there are more books that say it's okay that you're not okay. So um, you're really okay even if you're not okay, and God's okay, and you're okay, and everyone's okay, and so that's why we really don't even need any Bible teaching or anybody to tell us anything, because everybody's okay. Okay. God's okay. You're okay. I'm okay. But if someone falls down and their leg is going in the wrong direction, uh, I don't think you'll hand them the book. Hey, it's okay not to be okay. Um, Yeah. You got bones sticking out and uh, things are not the way they ought to be. You probably shouldn't give them that book. As a matter of fact, at that point, you might want to send them to the doctor. And if the doctor looks at a leg that's going the wrong direction, which we hope none of the legs that are in this room will be going the wrong direction this week, But if you perhaps saw someone with a leg all mangled and twisted around, uh, I think we should find out whether or not there is a real problem, because uh, the doctor's not going to say, hey, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, and it's okay if you're not okay, and you shouldn't say to your friends it's okay if you're not okay. Matter of fact, we need to find out if we are okay, and if we're not okay, then we should do something about it, and you should not be okay that you're not okay, okay? That's what we're going to deal with this week. And it's all going to come from Ephesians chapter 2. And tonight, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. So in your Bibles, you can look at it or you can look at it up here on the screen. It's a passage that is so helpful, even though it's going to tell you you're not okay. As a matter of fact, here's what Paul says, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, to people that were Christians. He looks and says to them, you know, if you think back, right, and you were dead In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, the way you lived was filled with these things, trespasses and sins. We'll try to figure out what that means. And he says, because of that, you were dead. And uh, what does that look like? Well, uh, you're following the course of this world, the way the world works, the pattern of the world, the way everyone else seems to be going along in this world. And it gets really creepy here in the middle of this verse, following the prince of the power of the air. Obviously, that's a reference to Satan, God's enemy, his archenemy, this spiritual force that leads all sorts of spiritual beings and people that are dead in their transgressions and sins. The Bible says, all you're doing is following the prince of the power of the air, the one who leads this world. The spirit, look at this now, it's not just an external influence that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's like one generation after the next, after the next. They just, they continue to be disobedient to God. And he says to these Christians, you know, you need to think about it. Among whom, these sons of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions, right? The desires of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, whatever our body wanted, or our mind, whatever our mind thought. And we were by nature. We were naturally, from the time we were kids, we were by nature, listen to this line, children of Wrath, wrath, anger, God's anger, like the rest of mankind.
1: This is an amazing
0: statement if you think about it. He says, you were dead, and you were dead. Those first four words, and you were dead. And he says, you know, that's the way all the people were that I'm writing to. We were all living in that state of deadness, which sounds odd, that you're living as a being that feels very much alive. But God says you're actually dead, whatever that means, we'll figure that out. And when he says, you know, then because of your deadness, because you before God were in the category of being dead, um, you were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, everyone. And that's a that's a really really big and weighty way to say you're not okay, and people are not okay. And if even if you're a Christian here today, you were not okay. And it's very important that you realize. That you were not okay this statement of being dead every single person one generation after the next generation after the next right this describes everyone if you're taking notes you ought to at least write that down whatever dead means right that applies to everyone either right now or who they were before it applies to everyone everyone i don't care who you're talking about i don't care how religious they are i don't care how godly they seem i don't care how you know happy they seem the bible says they were all dead before god that's a big deal very important for us to realize it describes everyone and really what we need to figure out is this word dead right why in the world would god use such a big word through the apostle paul's pen to tell us that when we think about who we are we need to say either we are right now dead or we were dead before we became alive and, and, and to think about that statement, that's a big, I mean, that's not just like you were messed up or you were sick or there was some kind of, you know, problem that needed to be kind of fixed or remedied in your life. This is like a huge statement, dead, dead, dead. What a, what a big, big, gigantic word that is. And if I said, what does it mean, right, to say someone is dead, right? That, that, that's really what we need To define, And if I said, okay, out here, the heat, you can figure out, I I I feel like I'm close to death if I stay in this heat very much longer. uh, I know what it would be to be out in the desert, no water, no food, I would die. And what that means is I would no longer be alive. It's the opposite of being alive. But of course, this is not talking about breathing. This is not talking about eating. This is not talking about your heart beating and your lungs filling with air. This is about being dead as it relates to something called transgressions, right, or trespasses and sins, things that are wrong, iniquity, wickedness, something that God sees as a moral problem in our lives. But we need to figure out what in the world does it mean to be dead in our transgressions? What is that? How does God see this? What is this all about? Well, to help you with what it means to be dead, maybe you should picture this, Uh, and I don't mean that when you get married, you die. But I do mean this, that when you go to a wedding, you do hear the word death. It's a part of almost every wedding ceremony that there is. Everybody in a building, a park, or in a church, or in a chapel, when there is a wedding, they usually say, because it's been a very common expression for six or 700 years, as people go to church and they stand in front of a pastor or even a civil leader in a city, and they say, well, I want to marry you. Well, how long is this going to last? They'll use this phrase, until separated by death. So you're going to be in this relationship, and this relationship is going to be this thing called marriage. And as it would be put in the Bible, these two people that had individual lives and individual families are now going to be together in a relationship. They're going to start a new home. They're going to start a new life. And the two now will be considered one. And we start a new home and a new family and a new unit here that we call husband and wife. And how long should this last? Is this like dating or going steady or is this like hanging out or being a roommate? You are to be together in this thing called marriage until, here's the phrase, you are separated by death. Because here's the thing, once your spouse dies, right, that makes for a pretty bad relationship because you're not going to have much of a relationship if your spouse is dead. And that's the point. Right? You will no longer be able to relate to this person if they're no longer alive. And that's why at weddings, they talk about the fact that you are going to be in this relationship. This is the ideal. It's the way it ought to be. It's the way God wants it to be until you are separated by death. And that phrase is really helpful for us. And the Bible does use that phrase when it talks about the problem of transgressions or sins or things that we've done wrong. Here's another word, and I used this word earlier to describe our sin problem, the word iniquity, something that before God is, is stinky, it's wrong, it's bad, it's repulsive. And, and it's the things that we do that all of us do by nature, and the Bible says those iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear Right? Just like if you were to try to have a good relationship with a spouse that has died, you can't really have it. It's just all in your mind. It's all imaginary. It's not real because you are no longer dealing with someone who's alive. There's a barrier, and death separates. And that's the idea in the Bible is that everyone is born in this state of separation. Now, a verse we often quote, and you probably learned if you've been around church at all, one of the first verses we learn in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And so what we need to realize when we're reading a passage about the problem that we all have, when God is basically saying, you're not okay. Human people are not okay. They're born not okay. We're going to say, okay, the problem is this thing called sin or transgression or iniquity or trespass. These things, right, being dead means that we are, in the beginning of our life, we feel very much alive. We're not alive to God. We're alive to our own environment. We're alive to each other. We're alive to our parents. We're alive to our siblings. We're alive to our classmates. But we're not alive to God, which means, like that gal standing next to a flag with the skull and crossbones, there's no relationship there. There's no real relationship between you and God from the time that we start our lives. Everyone starts out life separated from God. If you're taking notes, that'd be a good thing to write down. Everyone starts out life separated from God. I talk to people about being a Christian. I'll share the gospel with someone, which means you need to be right with God. And often they'll tell me this, oh, I, I've always been a Christian. I've always been a Christian. And, and in their minds, they're thinking, well, no, I started out... Just like everyone starts out okay with God, and I never really did anything too bad to mess that up. So, you know, I've always been in a relationship with God. And what the Bible is saying is, no, no, that's not how it works. Everyone starts out life separated from God. And I put life in quotation marks here because it's life. It really feels like being alive. It, it, it it's, it's, you know, what you're doing right now. You're, you're living, you're breathing, you're talking, you're thinking, you're, you're singing songs, you're, you're playing games, you're eating food. All of that feels like you're alive and you are alive. You're just not alive to God from the time that you are conceived until the time you become a Christian. And that's a super, 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 super important thing For us to understand. And we need to understand these two words here trespasses and disobedience. And we say the word trespasses, right? I think it's easy for us to think about that word in light of what we see on signs no trespassing. Someone owns some property, uh, they put up a sign, they don't want you being on their property. You shouldn't go here. You shouldn't be here, right? And if you do, you're breaking the rules. That's what it means to be someone who is doing a sinful thing. We're doing something that God says you should not do. And the point is, by nature, everyone is born not relating to God. And because we don't relate to God from the time that we're born, we just do, we do things that we want to do that God says we shouldn't do from the very beginning. It doesn't have to be a big thing because you look at things that you think, well, I may do things that God says I, I shouldn't do. Like I, I, I get mad, I say things I shouldn't say, I may deceive my parents or lie, I may cheat, I may steal, I may do those, but they're not big things. It's not like I'm ripping people off and breaking into their homes or stealing their cars. It's not big, big things. It's not like using like vulgarity to my parents' face, but yeah, I'll say a few things I shouldn't say. And the Bible says, well, here's, what, here's what's clear about every part of our lives. God says, here are things you should not do, like no unwholesome word should come out of your mouth. Speaking of the book of Ephesians, he goes on to say that in chapter 4. There should be nothing coming out of your mouth that's not a wholesome word, a good word, a positive word. He says to build other people up. Right? And, and, of course, that's not how we live. Not how any of us have consistently lived. That's not the way you started. As a matter of fact, all you did with your words, like all I did with my words, when we first started to learn to talk, is starting to tell people what I wanted, and what I wanted to do, and how I felt, and the things that I would like to see happen. I'm expressing my words for me. And the Bible says, well, when it comes to what God has created us for, we find ourselves doing things that we should not do. It's like crossing into territory we shouldn't be in to trespass. A trespassing violation is you going where you shouldn't go, saying what you shouldn't say, doing what you shouldn't do, thinking what you shouldn't think, getting involved in things you shouldn't get involved in. That's a trespass. Sins of trespassing, you got to think of it that way. You've got to think back to the Garden of Eden where there was this tree where God says, don't eat this fruit. And to eat the fruit was a trespass, right? It's doing basically what God says we shouldn't do. And you should think of a whole set of things in your life that would confirm the truth of the diagnosis, of the statement that you're not okay. You're not okay before God. And all you have to look for is, do you ever do things that God says we shouldn't do? Do you ever think things that God says you shouldn't think? Do you ever say things that God says you shouldn't say? Those are the sins of trespasses. And the sins of trespasses, according to our our text, it says that that's what makes us dead before God. That's an expression or a symptom or a way that we know that we are dead before God. Because look at how we act. Look at how we, we function. Look at what we say. This other word, disobedience, you can think about that a little differently. It's not just that I do things that I'm told not to do. Right? Here's a picture of a classic example, and all of us have been there, when we've been told to do something, like when we were little kids and told to eat our green beans or finish our plate or do make our bed, and if we didn't do whatever it is we were supposed to do from the youngest of times, well, we're engaged in an act of disobedience, not doing what God says we should do. So God says you shouldn't do this, whatever it might be. You shouldn't steal, shouldn't cheat, shouldn't lie. Those are things that all of us have done, even though God says you shouldn't do it. And then there are things that, that God says you should do. God says if you, for instance, go out and make some money, right? According to the book of Deuteronomy, God has given you the ability to make that money, and you ought to honor the Lord with your wealth, to quote the Bible, to quote the book of Proverbs. And you ought to take part of that, right? And, and, and kind of the, the, the ceremonial traditional part is at least a tenth of that. And you ought to give that to the leaders of God's community, To be used for godly things you ought to give it and i'll bet that you have come into money whether it's been given to you gifted to you from grandparents or whether you've earned it at a job and if you didn't give that money some of that money as god says you should well then you were disobedient the bible says you ought to be praying the bible says you ought to be giving thanks for your daily bread to quote matthew chapter 6 and to think if there are things in my life that i'm not thanking god for. Well, it's not like you feel like you stole someone or punched someone in the face or, or you did something terrible by saying some vulgar thing to somebody. But if you think about what God says, you didn't do what God says you should do. And this is called sin, right? This is the whole problem. When you talk about death, being dead to God, which is a hard way for us to think about it because it seems so extreme. It's not like we're sick or we could use a little improvement in our relationship. The Bible says we're, we're separated from God from the point of, of our birth. And all of our childhood has been lived out. All of our teenage years are being lived out apart from God until that problem is solved. The problem of sin. Now, here's the deal. You start telling people, as I'm telling you tonight, you're not okay because you are a sinner. Because you've either trespassed against God by doing what he says you shouldn't do, which, of course, we all have. And there's plenty of examples. And I hope you're thinking of some. And you haven't done what God says you should do. Right? If if you think through those two categories, that's all under the banner of sin. And the word sin means you've fallen short of what God expects. He expects you to do things that you haven't done. He expects you not to do things that you have done. That's the problem. And if I stand up here and say, hey, teenagers, you're not okay. You're not okay before God because you're a sinner. Uh, You know what what people are going to say? That's painful. That hurts. You're hurting my feeling. As a matter of fact, in our day, when your feelings get hurt, Now, I know it can represent some really serious problems, but most people, when people feel like they're getting hurt, they call that abuse, okay? And let me just say this. I've preached at Revival now for, I don't know, a long, long time, decades, right? Almost 20 years. And I've had teenagers come through here, sitting actually in this room, and I've told them, for instance, you are a sinner. And they go out later. Sometimes it takes three years, four years, five years, six years, 10 years. And they say, you know what? Mike Fabares, Pastor Mike, has abused us. He's abused us because he's told us that we're sinners. And you know, that hurts. That's abusive. And that's not a good thing because you know what? I should think, as has been written for years in in the community, I'm okay. That's what the pastor should tell me. I'm okay. And he should say, you're okay. And you know what? God's okay. And God's okay even if I really feel like I'm not okay. God's okay if I'm not okay. And, And that's how most people want to have their ego propped up. That's how most people want to say everything is fine. And I'm here today saying what I've said at Revival for years to a new group of teenagers. Hey, here's the thing, you're not okay before God. And I'm gonna use words like trespass and iniquity and sin. And I'm going to say, you are a sinner, and that makes you dead before God, and that's not abuse. As a matter of fact, that's what you want your doctor to say if your doctor is knowing the truth about the reality of something that maybe you haven't seen, maybe you haven't seen the test results, maybe you haven't studied medicine, but the doctor looks at some things that are going on in the in the slides and cultures of your life, and maybe you've got cancer or leukemia, some kind of blood cancer, and you can't see that. You just know you're not feeling all that great sometimes. And the doctor says, listen, here's the deal. You have a problem, and it needs to be fixed. If that doctor says, I see the problem, I know the problem's there, I look at what you're feeling, and I connect it to the real problem of why you're feeling that way, but I'm going to tell you everything is fine. If you had leukemia and you were feeling weird and your parents took you to a doctor and the oncologist looks at your, at your chart and he sees or she sees that you have cancer in your blood and they say in the meeting, "I, you know what, I don't want to be accused of hurting their feelings. I don't want to be accused of abusing this person. So I'm going to tell you, you're okay. And even if you don't feel all that way, it's okay that you don't feel okay. Everything's fine. It's one thing when a bone's sticking out of your leg in the wrong direction. That's where, you know, most people go, well, I'd like something done. But a lot of people say, well, I don't want radiation treatment or chemotherapy. I don't want to go through something that's going to make me, you know, feel like I got a real big problem in my life like cancer. As a matter of fact, you and your parents would probably sue the doctor that said everything's okay when everything was not okay. And yet there will be people that leave this auditorium and whether it's this month whether it's next year, whether it's a decade from now, and they'll say, Pastor Mike was telling us that we were not okay, and I look back now and I've met a lot of religious people that just keep telling me I'm okay and and they make me feel good. And all they tell me is God loves me. They don't say, I, I have a problem, like I'm dead before God. And they'll say, you know, he abused us, the spiritual abuse, that's what they call it. Well, I would be, and rightly so, if not before people, before God, I'd be guilty of clergy malpractice, pastor malpractice, if I didn't tell you a group of people that were born in this world, just like everyone else born in this world, and the Bible says everyone in this world is born messed up before God, dead in their transgressions and their sins. So I have to tell you this because that's what the Bible says That we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and that we are sons of disobedience. So what should we do with that? Well, here, taking notes, you ought to write this down. We ought to admit that we are disobedient to God, that we fall short of God's standards, that we do transgress His law, and you just need to admit it. Because no one's going to do anything about a diagnosis of leukemia or any other sickness that maybe is not obvious, like a bone sticking out. They're not going to say, well, I need to do something about this. I need treatment. I need to go through some kind of program at the hospital to fix this if they don't admit they got the problem. You have to admit you have the problem. And I'm going to tell you what preachers have been telling people for 2,000 years now based on what Jesus told us to tell people, and that is that we have a sin problem matter of fact, there were people in Jesus' day that didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say. And he says, because you don't think that you have a problem. John chapter 9, he says, you guys think that you can see, but you're blind. And because you think you see, then your blindness is going to remain. You won't be able to know the truth. You won't be able to see God. You won't be able to enter the kingdom of God because you think you're okay. You've got to realize you're not okay. And the books that need to be written and need to be understood and we need to admit to are the reality that we've got a problem called sin and the problem of sin and disobedience and trespass before God, it makes me admit I'm okay. And that's hard because if I said, would you stand up here right now and say it and mean it that you are not okay before God, that you are dead to God? I think most people say, well, I don't think so, right? I, I, I would say, if you start talking like that, I'm going to respond, well, no one's perfect. What are you trying to say? What are you perfect? Are you trying to say you're perfect? Are you trying to say that i got to be perfect? Well, no one's perfect. As a matter of fact, I can look around and I can see I'm no worse than anybody else. Right? As a matter of fact, everyone in this room can probably find someone in this room, except for one person, and we won't rank them, who's better, you know, that's worse than them. Right? In other words, I could say, you know, if you looked at your life and you looked around the room, you could find someone that's got a life that has more trespasses and more sins than you. And all I'm saying is, yeah, you can say that. That doesn't mean that you don't have the problem. And we've got to stop and say, do I admit that I am a sinner? That's the most important thing that the Bible teaches us about getting to the place of being alive. We cannot be alive until we admit that we're dead. We cannot get right with God until we admit that we're wrong with God. We cannot have eternal life until we realize we've got a problem that's big that should lead us, as the passage says, to God's judgment or wrath, as we'll look at in a minute. So important. Well, I don't feel like I'm all that bad. Well, you don't feel like you're all that bad because you're in good company. Because if you are the typical person who is not yet alive, and most people, right, they go through even years of church and they're not right with God because they just hear the words, they say, well, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and they're not right with God. They're not really right with God. But they think, you know what, I'm okay because I look around and I feel like I'm I'm not any worse than anybody else. And the problem is you follow the course of the world. The whole world makes you feel like I'm okay because we are all living among these sons of disobedience, right? Among whom we all once lived. So even the people that are alive, we led a life that was surrounded by people that were just doing the wrong thing. Look at this last line, like the rest of mankind. Everyone else in mankind is heading toward God's judgment. It's a huge, huge swath of people and if you just imagine a big street now picture it full of people and they're all walking down the street and you're in this crowd and you're thinking well you know what i don't feel like it's all that dangerous because i'm surrounded by people i don't feel like i really got a big problem because i'm surrounded by a lot of people and they all do what i do well jesus taught about that all the time he says you know the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction right that wrath at the end of that path it's easy to get there and those who enter by it are many. There's tons of people that are in the position that say, I'm no worse than anyone else. I feel like I'm okay. You sit there and abuse me with your words about sin and transgression and iniquity and all of that stuff. I'm not interested in, in, in talking about my disobedience before God because my disobedience isn't all that bad. And the reason you may not feel like it's all that bad is because there's a ton of people in the world that are just like you. So you don't feel like the odd man out. You don't feel like you're in the minority. As a matter of fact, the more you sin in our culture, the more people will applaud you, particularly the kinds of sins that our world loves to applaud. According to Romans chapter 1, there are a lot of people out there that know intuitively. They know it, and that means in their own heart, in their conscience, they know it. They fight the reality of what they know is right, and they do the wrong thing, and they know that God's righteous decree, and that means His rules, that they, they know that those who practice sinful things, such things that he's just described in Romans chapter 1, they know they deserve that wrath. They know they deserve to die. They know they deserve eternal separation from God. They not only do those things, but look at this. They give approval to those who practice them. Now, there are some sins the world will not applaud, but you know what? It's a shrinking number of sins they won't applaud. You go out there today and you tell everyone publicly you go out on social media, you tell them, I now am going to embrace this kind of sin, whatever it might be, you can have a lot of people going, hey, brave, proud of you, fantastic. That's, you know, it's good. You every, you know, to each his own. I get it. Don't let anybody tell you you're not okay. You're okay. I'm okay. God's okay. We're all okay. They'll give you hearty approval. And unfortunately, that's the problem that makes us think, well, I'm not all that bad, and it's really not me, and don't talk about words like death because I don't feel like I'm dead before God. Well, one of the reasons we don't, not only is because there's everyone else walking down this road, but there's a leader that's directing this. There's someone like an orchestra director, a conductor that's conducting this whole thing as everyone marches down this big, long street. The Bible says, Jesus says, into destruction. The gate is really broad, really wide, that leads to that. And the Bible describes this person as the prince of the power of the air. Just imagine the sea of people out there. And what the Bible teaches is that there's someone guiding these people. And he's called the prince. That means he's not the ultimate king. He's not in charge of all all the universe. Right? God is the king of kings and lord of lords. But he has a prince here that's a rebel. He's a sinner. He's the ultimate sinner. He's the first sinner, Satan. And this one called the tempter, right? He's called the serpent in Genesis 3 and in the book of Revelation. And this one sinner has access to the whole world. And the Bible says he's directing people down this path. That You're walking according right, to the prince of the power of the air. You're following after him. Not only following after the course of this world, but following after the prince of the power of the air. I mean, look how often this is discussed in the Bible. And I know we don't like to think of this because we think, well, oh, I can't really believe that everyone's in, 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 in with Satan. First John chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. How big is the problem of death? Huge. What does that mean? That means people are separated from God and they're walking down a path and they like to think, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, God's okay, everyone's Okay. And the problem is that Satan, who already knows he's not okay, he's going to a place called the Lake of Fire, but he's out there trying to get everybody to think everything's fine. And he's one who is out there with his power, trying to get people to think that it's fine. John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said, as he looked at people that were lying, he said, you are of your father the devil. He says, it's like you're sons of this prince of the power of the air. And your will, your desire is to do your father's will, your father's desire. And that's not a capital F. We're not talking about the father, God the father. We're talking about Satan the father. He's the prince of this world and he's directing people down a path. And that's one of the reasons we think, well, I don't feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in much trouble. I don't think I'm dead. I don't think it's a big problem. I think I'll just be fine because I know a lot of people that are just fine. A lot older than me, they seem to be living life. Everything's great. Well, they they may be going through this life, and they look successful. They look like, yeah, I could live like that. Not a big deal. But the Bible says they're being directed by the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, the devil who's getting people to do the desires that he is doing, even though the world applauds, applauds those things. And speaking of that phrase, the serpent in Revelation 11, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver, look at this phrase, of the whole world. Why do people think they're okay? Why are there books written about I'm okay, you're okay, you know, God's okay, it's okay not to be okay? Because Satan's out there trying to deceive people. Because what I need them to do is keep marching in the direction they're going, keep doing the things they're doing, keep doing the things that are wrong that God says you shouldn't do, and don't do the things God said you should do, and applaud people when they don't do it, because that's what Satan wants. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus said. That's what the last book of the Bible says, that ancient serpent, the devil, who is Satan, is the deceiver of the whole world. There's someone orchestrating all this. But it gets worse than that. As I said when I read it, it's not just the influence from the outside. It's the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and that's even scarier. And the Bible says a lot about that. Not just is there someone kind of leading this whole thing, like a leader who marches people down a street, like a kind of director of an orchestra who's conducting this thing, but this is something now internal. The spirit, now that's just a way to talk about the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Picture this, it's as though Satan is actively involved in the brains and the minds and the values and the, the priorities of the people of this world that he's working within their brains in their minds. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this world, you see that's a small g. We're talking about Satan here. The God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. So they're not going to be alive. The light of the gospel makes you alive. That's what we're here to preach about this week. The light of the gospel makes you alive. But there is a spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, keeping them on that dead path, moving toward God's wrath, and he's in their minds, trying to keep them from seeing it. The God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And if that's scary, it should be scary. It makes you feel like you're some kind of, of, of robot. Well, that is how non-Christians are described. They're responsible for their decisions, right? But it is like they are, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 12, irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed like an animal, blaspheming matters about which they are ignorant, and they will also be destroyed, just like those animals that you would raise up just to slaughter them and eat them. Here's a bunch of people heading to destruction, and the Bible says it's like they're just unreasoning, irrational animals, just instinctively doing the wrong things. And then he describes the fact that they're blaspheming. They're making fun. That's what blaspheming means. They're making less of things that are important, matters about what they don't even understand. The people that mock me for preaching at revivals about the fact that I'm saying that you're a sinner and they're calling that abuse and they're making fun of me online or they're saying whatever they're saying to ridicule me or attack me or anybody else who preaches this message, right? They're blaspheming. They're making less of, they're making fun of things they don't even understand. And why? Because Satan is at work within their lives. That's, I didn't say it. That's what the Bible says. Right? Following the course of this world, right? following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You're going to memorize those words, and when you memorize them, you've got to think clearly about what they mean. That's what it is to be dead, to be walking in this mass of humanity down this road. And again, people say, well... I think I'm fine. I think I'm okay. I don't want to, I don't want to be a Jesus freak. I don't want to get all serious. I've met some people like that. They seem nerdy. They seem weird. I'm, I'm okay, right? I feel okay. I feel like I'm okay. I don't feel like I'm dead. I don't feel like I'm controlled by Satan. I don't feel like I'm blinded. I don't feel like I'm going to hell. I don't feel that way. No, I understand that. Here's why. Look at the, Look at our passage among whom we all live, among the sons of disobedience on this big marching parade down to destruction. We lived in, here's what we did, the passions of our flesh, passions, our desires, the things we wanted, our cravings, right? We, we carried out the desires of our body and mind. Now think about that. If I'm carrying out the desires of my body and mind, what I feel like I want and what my mind says I want, right? then that's gonna keep me, keep me occupied Makes me feel like I'm not dead. I can feel pretty alive because I'm out there doing a lot of fun things. As a matter of fact, these are the kinds of things that people say, I'm just going to chase the things that are fun, right? I'm going to hang out with my friends because that makes me feel good. Matter of fact, I can make a lot of money. That would be a great thing. And, and, and my family's kind of nice and it's cool. And maybe you've got a good family and we take vacations and that's fun. And so all of these things, I, I'm doing those things. And that keeps me from feeling like I got a real problem, like I'm going to go to hell when I die. I don't believe that. I don't feel like that. I feel like I'll be okay. And so it is that this generation, they pour themselves. Just like every generation, it's just you got new tools to do it, to engage in things, to satisfy the desires of your heart and your mind and your body, right? And we live in an affluent place. And whether it's clothes, whether it's a nice home, whether it's, you know, alcohol. Think about alcohol in our generation. This generation is the worst when it comes to engaging in alcohol. 30% of eighth graders, right, are already engaged in drinking regularly. 30%, 11% of all the alcohol in this country is consumed by people under 21 years of age, which, by the way, in our in our state is illegal. 90% of underage drinking is binge drinking. It's not like I'm gonna have a little wine with dinner. Well, that doesn't go over very well, I would hope, at your house. So it's all the parting. Think about those stats. 10% of junior hires, right, when surveyed honestly say, yeah, I drank this past month, would admit that they were drunk in the past month. High school, there's 33% drinking in a particular month. 18% would admit that they've been drunk in the past month. And you get to college, and then it goes crazy. Even before they're 21, even before it's legal to drink, 80% of college students engaging in drinking alcohol. Why? Because they want to feel good. 50% engaging in binge drinking. 50% of all college students, 18 to 21 years old, 50% engaging in binge drinking, which means getting drunk. Why? They want to feel something. They're satisfying the cravings, the desires of their body and their mind. And yet, 700,000 physical assaults that are connected to binge drinking. 97,000 sexual assaults and rapes take place because of binge drinking. 2,000 deaths just among college students dying in their dorm rooms and at the frat houses just because of drinking. At least 20% of these people engaging in college drinking already considered by objective secular people as full-blown alcoholics suicide vandalism injuries drunk driving and then weed today right think about pot think about marijuana today has gone from this is something that used to be done behind these closed doors cloaked in secrecy that now it's legal it's legal not only because people say, well, I got arthritis, and it'd be great if I had some, some marijuana because it makes me feel better. But now it's like, it's okay for recreationals. You wanna feel good. You wanna fulfill the cravings of your body and your mind. right? we got stuff like, like, like marijuana. Even if you say, well, you know what? I, I think my parents, they're respectable people, and they, I, they, smoked, they smoked some pot back in the day. Do you understand that the pot that was smoked back in the day by your parents, which I hope your parents didn't, my parents didn't, but I hope yours didn't either, But even that it's it's so much weaker three percent of the content of marijuana back in the day of your parents day when they were teenagers three percent was tetrahydra which uh cannabinol which is the active ingredients of making you feel euphoric making you feel something satisfying the desires of your heart and mind today six percent just in the normal weed bag that you will buy hash oils 50% 50% THC levels all the way up to 80%. The potency of the marijuana today on the streets to make people feel something immediately is 5, 10, 15, sometimes 100 times more potent than it was back in the day and why? Because people want to feel something. They want to fulfill their desires. And think about pornography. Think about what's going on in pornography. Back in the day when there was when I started in ministry teaching teenagers, right? It was rare to have someone, particularly females, involved in pornography. Now, it is rampant in this room right now. If we could somehow accurately identify your your connection with pornography, it would be staggering to see the statistics of what you're looking at on your phones. It's off the charts, why? Because you have a craving and you wanna satisfy that craving. And so you engage in things. The cravings and desires, passions of the flesh, the cravings of your mind and your body, these are the things that people engage in constantly. It's all over the place, not to mention food itself. We're the most overweight generation, think about this, that has ever been, right? We are in this particular culture, even on the West Coast, which, well, I mean, we're better than most people in terms of weight in other parts of the country, just pounding on food that we don't eat. Why? Because we want to feel better. We, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a different kind of, of, of numbing of your life and craving and fulfilling those cravings. But the reality of how we have in our day, the kind of of unhealthy eating, simply because people want to feel something. And when they can't feel better because they've tried everything, you know what people do today, they harm themselves, they cut, they do all kinds of things because they want to feel something. Why? Because this is what you do when you're on a path to hell and you don't want to feel it. You try to mask that by engaging in the passions of your flesh, fulfilling the cravings of your body and your mind. This is what's been going on. It's been going on for a long time, but it's ramped up in our generation in a way. It's so much easier today to do things, for instance, like pornography, like drugs, like alcohol, even like eating and self-harm. I guess you could always harm yourself back in the day, but this is just at a brand new level that we've never had before because it's hard in our day to not hear someone tell you that you're a sinner. And because we know that that message is out there, we want to close our ears to that, we don't want to hear it, and so we just want to do things that make us feel better. There was a man back in the day. He was the son of King David. He lived 1,000 years before Christ. He wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, that is a word that describes someone who's a preacher, who's teaching. And at the end of his life, he's an old man, gray hair. He's teaching people about the problems of just fulfilling the passions of your flesh, the cravings of your body and your mind. And he says, you know, back in the day I did that. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with things like wine. I made all kinds of great things. Talk about mansions and and materialism. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks, and I planted them in all kinds of fruit. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any other who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, right? I got both men and women and many concubines, right? Like prostitutes that were in-house prostitutes, right? I had as much sex as I wanted. I had as much money as I wanted. I amassed all of this. I, I did all of this just to try and feel something, feel good. I became so great. Talk about fame and, and, and celebrity, I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil. I mean, it felt something. That's why I did it. And this was my reward for all my toil, is that I felt something temporarily. Then I stopped and I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, it was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And in the end, didn't help. Didn't fix. I tried to numb myself by doing whatever I wanted to do, but it didn't fix the reality that at the end of the path, if I just continue down the path and I don't become alive to God, I'm going to end this thing with God being mad. That's what wrath means. I'm going I'm to get to the place where I realize I'm going to be judged by a God who's going to pay me back for the sins that I've committed which by the way is how that book ends, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God, here's the conclusion, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, well I don't want to keep his commandments, everyone else is just going along fine, no, but the reality is God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, all the things that people aren't willing to applaud, all the sins that we're doing secretly, Every secret thing, whether it's good or evil, it's all going to be laid out on the table. Think about that. Every deed of your life brought into judgment, and God is going to look at it and evaluate it with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The wages of sin is death. And you can say, because I was born in a sinful humanity, I was born separated from God. But the real problem is, even though I started out life separated from God, I don't feel separated from God, not only because I keep trying to do things that make me feel better all the time, not just because everyone around me is kind of doing, doing fine and they don't seem to be all into God, but because I'm living in a place, right, that I get all of God's blessings. I mean, think about the place we are right now. is a beautiful place, and you get to experience it. A little too hot at the moment, but you get to experience all this, and the Bible says that everything that we experience that's good, every good gift and perfect gift, it comes from above, coming down from the Father of light. So God right now is actively involved in your life, and you're saying, ah, there, finally, he's saying it. I'm not dead to God because I see God's blessings in my life. Absolutely, you see God's blessings in your life. That's because you're living life now. You haven't reached the judgment yet. I mean, you live in a beautiful place. You live in South Orange County. And the Bible says God is showering blessings on people, not just in South Orange County, but everywhere. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends his rains on just, on the just and the unjust, on the righteous and the unrighteous, on good people and bad people. doesn't matter if they're alive or dead. He spills out all these blessings on him. I mean, think about it. Every meal that we get, every good thing that we get, every family time that is a good experience, all of that comes from God. Even birds, they don't get fed without God. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And think about that. Everything you've ever had as a satisfying experience. The Bible says you're more valuable than birds. That's why he keeps giving all these things to people. Well, Why? If we're by nature children of wrath, well, here's one reason, and I didn't put this one on the overhead, but how about this? Romans chapter two, verse four, because all of his kindness is to lead you to repentance. And that's where we're going tomorrow. We got to think about what that means. How do we get alive? But right now, what we got to do is figure out what it means to be a child of wrath I've got to think how do I deal with that reality if I'm dead to God even though I have all of his blessings all around me and every good thing I have I feel like God loves me and you're right he does he's loved you by giving you what he's given you that is good and then you've tried to numb the fact that you're really not in relationship with God by trying to do things that make you feel better how does this end what does that mean wrath wrath seems like such a bad word angry I feel like someone just exploding with anger right? Is that how we should view God? Like he's just losing his mind and he's angry? No. A matter of fact, you ought to think in the Eastern. Don't think of this guy on the left. Think of this guy on the right. If the king has decided that this is something that causes him wrath, right? He doesn't scream and pull his hair out, right? He's not like, this is like, you're just making me mad and I need to yell at you. Kings don't do that. All they do is lift their scepter. All they do is point their thumb down. When a king is going to express his wrath, right, he doesn't have to yell because he has all the power. The Bible says God is going to spill his wrath out on people that reach the end of this life that are still dead. If you're still dead by the time you die, dead to God in relationships separated from God, you will incur the wrath of God. But that's not just somebody losing his mind and yelling at you. I mean, you've had people exploding. You've probably had your parents yelling. you. at That's not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a very exacting kind of response from someone who's in charge. You should think of it, in the modern sense, as a a judge. And there's two things that will happen. You need to remember this when you're thinking about all the things that you have that make you think, I'm fine with God because I see all God's blessings around me. Think about the reality of a judge bringing passive judgment to you. This is an important concept. Get it. Passive judgment. That would be worth writing down. Passive judgment. If I'm saying, what does it mean to be a child of wrath? by nature, going to incur the wrath of God? Well, first of all, it means there's a passive wrath. There's a passive judgment. What does that mean? Well, here's a world that God has created, and he's showered all kinds of blessings on the world. And the world goes, I'm not interested in walking a narrow path, going through a small gate. I'm fine with the big crowds. I'm fine with the big wide street. I'm fine with people applauding me for doing what I'm fine with thinking I'm no worse than anyone else. I like the message. I'm okay. You're okay. God's okay. If you want to go there, God says, you've turned away from what I've said. And therefore, if you're going to do that, okay. That's passive judgment. Passive judgment means you don't get God anymore then. Because right now, you got a lot of God in your life, even if you're not a Christian. Even if you're dead to God, you may not have a relationship with God, but you have a lot of gifts from God. But the Bible says one day when his wrath is spent, when his anger comes, it's a very determined anger, very specific anger, like a king who puts his thumb down, Right? It says, they're going to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. A beautiful sunset over the Colorado River is the, is, is the glory of his might. Right? Having a great summer is the glory of his might. Having a good meal, glory of his might. Having good friends and a good family, glory of his might. Enjoying life, the glory of his might. And all of that, done. Done. Right? It's like a kid who says, "I'm done, I'm running away from my home." Well you run away from your home? You're also running away from your, your parents' refrigerator. From the glory of his power, right? First Timothy chapter 6 verse 17 reminds us, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And some people foolishly think, well, I don't mind being in the crowd because if I'm in the crowd and I don't get on the narrow path and I don't become alive, I can stay dead. It's okay because we're all going to the same place. As a matter of fact, they seem a lot more fun than the guys at church. So I think it's okay to get to the end of life because I'll just be there with everyone else. The problem is God is going to take the world and say, if that's what you want, you can have the isolation. You can be away. You can turn away from me. I'll turn away from you. There's going to be no partying in hell. And everyone thinks, well, if I get to the end of my life, I'll be okay because there'll be a lot of people there with me. Most of my friends will be there. It'll be okay. There's no partying there. There's no fun there. There's no glory of his might. There's no enjoyment there. There's no pleasure there. As a matter of fact, here's how God describes it. All this is is darkness. All this is is being cast away from God's presence. Matthew 8:12. they will be thrown into outer darkness. You want to see what his wrath looks like? His wrath is, you don't want me? You don't want to follow what I say? You're not interested in life? Great. You get death, and here's death, separation. You're separated not only relationally, you're separated from all my gifts. You'll be thrown into the outer darkness, into that place where, guess what? If you have none of God's gifts, that's a bad place for human beings to be. There's there weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's passive judgment. When you send someone to jail, they don't get to go to In-N-Out Burger whenever they want. You send someone to jail, they don't get to go and, 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 and play golf. They don't get to go to a baseball game. They don't get to go and enjoy stuff because they're passively separated from all those things. That's what judgment is. That's what God's wrath is all about, at least half of it. The other half is something the Bible calls or leads us to categorize as active judgment. Active judgment. And active judgment is exactly what it sounds like. He is actively responding to everything that we've done that we shouldn't have done. He's actively responding to everything we didn't do that we should have done. Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will, here's a word, repay each person according to what he's done. So all these things that we did to try and numb ourselves from the reality that we're dead to God, he said, now we're going we're to deal with each one of those, every single one of those. There will be active punishment. And every day that you continue to say, I'm not interested in following God's instructions to be alive, I don't, I don't want that. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm okay. You're okay. God's okay. We're all okay. The Bible says you're just storing up for yourselves wrath. More of that. More punishment. Because of your hard and impenitent, that means you're not repentant, your impenitent heart. You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The Bible says every single person falls into the category of this passage either right now and for the rest of their life, or if you are a real Christian, this is how your life was. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following... The course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our week is called Dead or Alive. And you've seen it, it's on your shirts, it's on everything we printed, it's out there dead or alive. But you need to see it this way it's like you got two boxes, right? And, and the question is, where, where are you? That's the question. And if you say, well, I'm alive because I feel like I've always been alive and I'm okay and I've always been okay, here's the point. We've just said tonight, from the authority of God's word, no, no one has ever, ever been okay, right? We all start not okay, we all start dead. The whole hope of this week is that you will be alive. That's the point. But everyone starts out dead. The whole point of this week is for you to figure out dead or alive, dead or alive, dead or alive. And this night, I just want to start with saying why you might feel like you're not dead, right? Why you might be dead and don't even feel like you're dead. We need to give that some thought. We need to learn this passage. We need to think through ourselves with honesty. We need to get to the place where we understand the reality, what it means to go from death to life. That's the whole point of Revival 2022. Let's pray. God, I pray we'd be honest with ourselves. We would do the kind of thinking about who we are that's so honest, maybe more honest than we've ever been, to listen to what you've said, like a doctor who's done all the testing and looked at our lives because we're no different than the people throughout all of the history of the Bible we are people that have a problem and it's a problem that has to be addressed but first it's only going to be fixed by admitting that we have it none of us starts out alive none of us starts out right with you and God we want to be right with you we need to start by knowing we've got an issue a problem it's called being dead in our transgressions and sins and as horrific as it is to think about that we are people who have just followed the course of this world Maybe up to this very moment, follow this uh, prince of the power of the air, this spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. God, please give us clarity about where we stand with you tonight, that we might do the kind of business that we need to do in responding to the rest of this amazing passage, beginning in verse 4, to know that you can make us alive. Help us to understand what that means to be made alive, but start tonight just by having us be honest about ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.